I'm joined today by Ilya Shapiro, a leading scholar, and I would say one of the leading um, academics when it comes to the US Constitution in the whole of America. Ilya, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Now, I should also mention that um, you are also a fellow of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. So it is, it is wonderful to have you um, on, this, on this podcast. Yeah, I, uh, I clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, lived in Jackson uh, 20 years ago now almost, uh, So uh, and, and have been back many times, uh, have been an adjunct professor at the University of Mississippi Law School, and delighted to be involved with the MCPP, and uh, especially the uh, Mississippi Justice Institute, uh, the legal arm. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you do. And thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you have just, congratulations, you've just got a new role with the Manhattan Institute. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, this is, I guess, the, the culmination of uh, what we're going to be talking about, my uh, uh, bout in controversy the last few months. But uh, I'm about to go on vacation tomorrow with my family, actually, to Sicily for two weeks. But right when, when we get back, the Fourth of July holiday, we throw a big party here for our neighborhood. And then the next day, I start my new role as Director of Constitutional Studies at the Manhattan Institute, a think tank based in, in New York, as you might expect by the name. I won't be moving there. I'll be heading up the Falls Church, Virginia office, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. and looking forward to uh, continuing to file amicus briefs, as I did when I was with uh, Cato for nearly 15 years, uh, and being in the arena on national commentary on, on legal political issues. Now, that is the happy ending, if you like, but the unhappy story and the drama that we're going to talk about. Um, you, you had been offered, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story about um, intolerance, about a lack of um, free thinking on campus. You had been offered a role uh, at Georgetown University, and you had, I think I'm right in saying, sent out a tweet that was perhaps, perhaps at worst, a little bit clumsy. Um, but it made it, I think, a valid point, which is that when Biden made appointments to the Supreme Court, he should do so on the basis of merit rather than on immutable characteristics. Tell us a little bit about what, 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 what happened? Right. So um, I'd been at, at the Cato Institute as a, ultimately as a vice president and director of constitutional studies, uh, decided I, I wanted to see if there was a, a, a way of making a different uh, kind of impact in public affairs, looking for a new challenge. And so I got an offer to join uh, Georgetown's law school to become the executive director of the Center for the Constitution which as it turned out, I guess, as opposed to the rest of the law school, which is the center against the constitution. But um, a few days before starting that role, uh, when uh, Justice Breyer's retirement uh, leaked, uh, I was commenting to the media and, and put up a blog post and things like that, because that's my area of expertise that I, that I comment on. Uh, and that evening in my hotel room in Austin, Texas, I was uh, engaged in not a best practice, uh, doom scrolling through Twitter and getting upset by various uh, commentary and uh, tweeted my criticism of President Biden's uh, decision to limit his search for candidates for new justices uh, by race and sex. He said he'd appoint a black woman. Uh, nothing wrong with having a black woman justice, of course, uh, many qualified uh, people for that. But I said, you know, I think if I were a Democratic president, I would pick uh, Sri Srinivasan, who's the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, happens to be uh, an Indian-American uh, immigrant, so also some identity politics benefit. But I said, given today's uh, hierarchy of intersectionality, uh, that won't work. And instead, we'll end up with, uh, and he, this is the key three words, a lesser Black woman. 
Uh, now, of course, if you read that uh, tweet with anything other than malice or bad faith, you can see that I was uh, simply saying that, uh, you know, my choice is Judge Srinivasan. So everybody else in the universe is a worse choice or less qualified. And given Biden's restrictions, we would end up with a less qualified uh, black woman. But anyway, I went to bed after that, woke up and there had been a firestorm on social media overnight. Uh, people calling for my head, um, you know, screen capping my tweet. I, I took it down and said, look, uh, didn't didn't mean to offend anyone that was inartfully drafted. Um, there we go. Try, try to get ahead of it, but it was too late. And ultimately, the dean of the law school, Bill Trainer, uh, suspended me with pay, allowed me to join the center a few days later, what my start date, but suspended me with pay pending investigation into whether my tweet uh, violated uh, policies on harassment and anti-discrimination. And it took the uh, legal eagles uh, more than four months to figure it all out. And ultimately, they didn't simply apply the very clear uh, and very good free expression policy that Georgetown has. Instead, they looked at a calendar and saw, oh, uh, I wasn't an employee when I tweeted. So those policies don't even apply to me. So I celebrated that technical uh, victory in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. But then when I got the report from the Office of uh, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action, kind of an Orwellian name, uh, with my lawyer, uh, with uh, Randy Barnett, storied uh, law professor who founded the center and was my boss, with my wife, who's a better lawyer than all of us, uh, came to the conclusion that they were setting me up for a fall and it was untenable for me to remain uh, at Georgetown. They basically said this report that the next time I said something that offended someone or somebody complained that they felt uncomfortable, that that would constitute a hostile educational environment. And there's no way that I could do the fulfill the duties for which I've been hired under that kind of circumstance with that sort of Damocles hanging over my head. And so uh, produced a four page resignation letter that I sent to the dean and then made public and and then uh, summarized in another Wall Street Journal op ed uh, explaining the, the law school's illiberal position, their subjective mode of, of having a, a heckler's veto, that is someone who doesn't like speech shuts down the speaker and giving examples of obvious situations that, that uh, not just could, but will arise when I'm talking about a Supreme Court opinion or teaching a class about a sensitive legal issue that clearly somebody is going to at least claim offense uh, and, and away we go back to the star chamber. When I first heard people talking about the notion of a safe space on campus, I just thought how, how as we would say in England, how wet, how, how pathetic that these um, precious um, people want to be in a safe space. But actually, I think there's something quite dangerous about the idea of safe spaces because it, 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 it creates a rationale for policing speech. If, if you can say that you're going to do or say something that's going to harm someone, um, it, 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 it rationalizes this sort of policing of... Uh, what I think is really important is that you go to university and you're challenged. Um, you, you, you should be challenged as a student at university. It's, it's kind of why you're all there. But to, to create an environment where you have um, the, this uh, determination to, to, to find um, and police safe spaces, that, that more or less precludes anyone saying anything of interest or controversy or, or challenging to anyone, doesn't it? It really shuts down uh, civil discourse. It narrows what's known as the Overton window, the range of permissible uh, policy and, and other views and enforces a rigid uh, orthodoxy that punishes deviation. And that's what's really different now from the age-old complaint about 
well, universities are too left wing or you know, professors are, are too liberal or progressive. You know, uh, I graduated college nearly 25 years ago, graduated law school nearly 20 years ago. And I don't think the ratio of you know, liberal to moderate to conservative faculty or students has really changed all that much. But what has changed is uh, this administrators kowtowing to uh, the, the radical left um, uh, in enforcing this, uh, this rigid orthodoxy. So speech certainly is chilled. Students do self-censor. Um, they punish each other. It's, it's kind of Maoist. They have struggle sessions of various kinds if you're, if you're, not, uh, if you're not with the program, uh, as it were. And um, uh, again, the, 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 the growth of bureaucracies is really what has created this. Uh, there, in many universities, there are now more administrators than faculty. Uh, and within that bureaucracy, especially the explosion of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, offices, which, uh, again, in an Orwellian sense, subvert uh, intellectual diversity, prevent equal opportunity, and exclude uh, any dissenting voices. They're almost the antithesis of that. Yeah, they, they, they stifle diversity, and they certainly don't include someone who, like you, has something interesting to say. But here's the thing, I can understand why, in a sense, your, your, and congratulations on the new role, in a sense, your, 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 um, your gain in not going there is, is their loss. They, were, they would have been fortunate to have you, Georgetown, and they, they haven't. Um, I can understand why you um, have chosen not to uh, go through with being at Georgetown, but why would a student, why would someone wanting to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money, which they're going to have to pay back, to go to an environment where it's run by compliance-obsessed, two-dimensional administrators who wouldn't know what a diverse thought was if it met them? You know, there are, there are better and worse places. I think Georgetown is particularly this way, which I you know, didn't think I was naive going in, but I hadn't realized exactly how, how rotten the core of, of the law school was. Um, you know, I can't in good conscience recommend to a law student to, to go to Georgetown. You know, there are some places that are better and worse. We saw Yale get embroiled in lots of scandals. You know, if you're, if you're that uh, high flying that you can get into, you know, the very top uh, law schools, I would suggest going to Chicago or even Harvard over, over Yale, for example. Uh, and, you know, at the Georgetown level, there, there's, there's others that are, I think, better too. But if you were in that environment, would you actually turn out to be a very good lawyer? I mean, one of the skills that I was taught as a teenager was to advocate something I didn't believe in and to build an argument and to be an effective advocator, irrespective of my own personal preferences. And, and surely if you're a, a lawyer, that's a really, really important skill. But if you go to law school and you don't even have to engage with ideas that you find disagreeable, um, how on earth could you possibly be a good lawyer? Yeah, that's uh, that's an important question to ask. And, uh, you know, are we churning out a generation of lawyers, or at least from some places, that uh, cannot effectively function, that the only job they're suitable for is to become one of these, uh, you know, diversity apparatchiks. Um, that certainly might be the case when I was shouted down. The only time, the first and only time I've ever been protested uh, in more than a thousand public speaking engagements was this past March when I was supposed to do an event at University of California Hastings uh, Law School in San Francisco, and the, the students just shouted me down and, and prevented the event uh, from, from happening. But, you know, it is worrying. After all, these are not, you know, teenage college students. These are would-be lawyers who surely in their career will face more challenging or stressful uh, issues than a tweet that offends them or a speaker from 
representing a perspective that they find distasteful. I, I, I wonder if we need to sort of reassess um, kind of how, how the left operates here, because um, Douglas Murray rather beautifully explained that what the left tends to do is, is rather like a sheepdog trying to herd a flock of sheep. It, it goes to the ones at the edges, it picks off, they, they try to target you and they try to sort of pick you off. Um, one of the consequences of that, I presume, is that a lot of academics who are anything other than uh, full-on progressive would be very, very reluctant to ever tweet uh, out any thought or express an opinion that was in any way controversial. Um, so, in effect, they have an impact out of all proportion to, to, um, to, to, to you know, they, they, they shift the, the, the flock. Um, this means that we, we sort of become we find ourselves bullied. This presumably makes it really important that actually those who believe in free speech and those who are conservatives actually have to be prepared to hold the line. We, we have to be prepared to rally to fellow conservatives when they're on the receiving end of this sort of treatment from the mob. Sure, and, and, and even old school liberals. I mean, there have been op-eds over the last few years where people with you know, solid credentials on, on the left, uh, you know, uh, whether, whether explicitly democratic or just you know, clearly not, uh, not conservative folks, and they're afraid of, uh, of the woke mob. They're afraid of their students um, because they, they do actually want to be good teachers and engage with different kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, this, this goes beyond, again, just complaints that conservatives aren't treated well. It's, it's about the whole, uh, the healthiness of the campus culture, uh, the pursuit of the basic educational mission of seeking the truth and, and following uh, your research wherever it, uh, wherever it goes and, and engaging in civil discourse. And you know, it, it used to be said that uh, you know, the campuses are just you know, extreme things, that it's not the real world, but we're seeing in society more generally these kinds of trends as well. Now, um, we are seeing some green shoots and pushbacks and, and kind of the pendulum swinging back a little bit, even in corporate America, some developments in recent months. Uh, so I am um, um, uh, moderately optimistic about, about society at large, but in, in academia, I don't know, we might have you know, passed the point of no return, even though the solution for how you uh, go back to a spirit of free speech and, and, and pursuit of knowledge and trying out arguments and being able to understand different perspectives, um, if administrators, deans, presidents, department heads simply stood up and said, look, we're not in the speech police business. We're not going to be taking positions on this and that in every controversy in public life. We're you know, an educational institution, and, and, and that's it. And those that have stood up that way, uh, like my law school alma mater, University of Chicago, uh, has generally been the gold standard uh, in that, um, they find that, that this kind of the, the mob dissipates uh, very quickly, whereas feeding it and indulging and placating um, these illiberal forces doesn't doesn't in the end uh, help anything, and and of course um, a university could always invite members of the mob to go elsewhere. Um, I mean it's a privilege to go to many of these institutions, and so presumably if if you're a student there and you don't think you've got anything to learn from the faculty and, and you're not willing to listen to different ideas, um, you could always um, go elsewhere. Um, have you have you talking about green shoots? Have you heard about Austin University? Um, what, what, what do you think the answer is? Do you think the answer is for us to set up universities that are explicitly in favor of free speech? Or do you think we should try and engage with some of these um, um, woke universities? What, what, what do you think we need to try and do? 
Well, University of Austin will be an interesting experiment to see the, the kind and caliber of, of students it can attract. Um, you know, think tanks for a long time, you know, that they originated as kind of shadow universities. And there's a, uh, a famous book uh, written uh, when I was in college by um, Alan Charles Kors, who's a, a Penn professor, and Harvey Silverglade, a civil libertarian lawyer in, in Boston. Uh, they, they ended up founding the Foundation for Individual Rights and uh, Education, which now became, uh, as of last week, they expanded their remit to be the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And they're an organization that defends um, uh, 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 speech rights for professors and students. They helped me tremendously. Um, but where I was going was this, the, the, they wrote a book called The Shadow University, which in part tells the story of how the, there are these parallel institutions, think tanks and otherwise, that arose to, to, to counter uh, the illiberal trends on, on college campuses. And, and I don't know whether, you know, uh, how long it will take to dissipate uh, the brand, the strong brand of your, your Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Georgetown sort of uh, institutions. Um, you know, how employers are going to look at, at these different places or whether they'll be able to differentiate uh, among students that actually do possess critical uh, reasoning skills and, and other things that they need, rather than merely having a, a credential from this institution. So, um, you know, there are, there are uh, certain places, there are few and far between that, that exist that, are, that are, have healthier cultures. Um, uh, but, uh, but I don't know. I think the jury's out on, on what exactly the, the right solution is. Thank you. Um, and uh, while I've got you on, um, you are obviously one of the um, leading scholars on the US Constitution. There's been a lot of discussion recently about um, the um, Supreme Court case um, that some people say could overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, we've got a particular interest in this because it's a case that originally involves Mississippi. Um, and if the court rules the way we think it might, and we only think it might rule that way because of a, a, a leak, a hostile leak um, a few months ago. But um, I'd love to hear your implication, your thought about the implications of this case. If it goes the way we think and Roe versus Wade is overturned, not so much on the issue of abortion, but what does that say about the Supreme Court and the way the Supreme Court thinks about um, federalism and the balance between uh, what states can do and what DC should be doing. Right, this is one case where actually the, uh, the oral argument made a big difference and I think uh, shifted uh, different analysts views on what was going to happen, myself included. Um, before we heard, heard argument in this the case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that Chief Justice John Roberts would engineer some sort of centrist compromise, uh, allowing Mississippi's law to stand without overturning Roe v. Wade or putting in some new standard and, and vacating and remanding for further litigation and, and so forth. But oral argument revealed that there seemed to be five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and send the issue of abortion, make it a, a political issue for each state to determine uh, for itself, and it looks like, as you said, based on the the the, the leaked draft, that that's what's uh, what's going to happen, uh, which would put us back to where we were 50 years ago, before the Supreme Court short circuited the developing uh, political battles over where exactly abortion regulation should be, uh, and what we'll end up with is probably what we should have ended up ended up with in the first place: some states being very restrictive, some states being uh, very uh, liberal, and 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 others being somewhere in between. 
the irony of all this, which a lot of people don't realize, is Mississippi's law, and Mississippi, of course, is known as a conservative state, uh, and the, you know, the, the, the law at issue restricts abortion past 15 weeks. That's actually less restrictive, more liberal than France or you know, most of Western Europe, for example. Um, so the, just the way that the jurisprudence has evolved in America to really uh, poison all of and, and, and uh, overarch all of our legal debates uh, is you know, focused on this one issue. And the one consequence I hope will happen is that uh, this, you know, by, by no longer being at the forefront of our Supreme Court and constitutional thought, uh, we can have a, a healthier discourse about the proper role of judges and, and, and all the rest of it. So in the short term, there's going to be political battles in, that have already started in state legislatures and, and things like that. Um, but the way that this might impact uh, other concerns, federalism or other types of individual rights, there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled on that. Um, but uh, Justice Alito's draft opinion says, and, and I think this is right, that abortion is different than other types of, say, privacy concerns, whether it's the use of contraceptives or other things that uh, consenting adults do in the privacy of their own homes, um, whether it's, you know, some people say that uh, uh, interracial marriage might be prohibited. Now, first of all, there's no political movement to ban interracial marriage uh, anywhere. I, I don't think Justice Thomas would want to criminalize his own marriage or say Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate leader, <laughs> would want to criminalize his own marriage. So that's, that's a, a bunch of uh, a hot air to say the least. Uh, but the reason abortion is different um, is because at a certain point, there is a second human being with rights. And you know, where that point is, whether it's birth, conception, first trimester, second trimester, quickening, insolment, you know, that's a very serious question, of course, but it's not a legal one. It's a philosophical, theological, scientific, and thus ultimately uh, political one that, that each, each polity, each state will be deciding for itself. That's very different from... Um, you know, uh, consenting adults doing what they want to do, and, you know, arguments about uh, morality and so forth. That's a, a little more abstract than actually at a certain point having a, a second human being whose rights uh, are at issue. If, if we end up in a situation where when it comes to abortion, Maryland and Massachusetts and Mississippi can do their own thing. And, you know, frankly, if you don't, if you really find it objectionable, you can always kind of move state. Um, if you do that on, on the issue of abortion, what other areas do you think the court might at some point return back to the states? Well, I don't think it's so much on the air, on issues of individual rights. Um, and, you know, the, the federalism um, comes in a little differently when we're talking about government powers rather than uh, the scope of uh, federal constitutional protections for individual rights. So the power of the federal government over whether it's healthcare or education or different kinds of uh, financial regulation, say, you know, these kinds of issues, whether, whether the Constitution gives Congress the power uh, to do something in a given area, uh, that's, you know, a different area of law. And certainly the, the court is, um, you know, showing signs of, of being willing to, to enforce federalism a little more there. But in terms of individual rights claims, um, there's nothing quite like uh, abortion. You know, there's a there's a Second Amendment case, a gun rights case at the court this term, and they will the 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 justices will likely for the first time in 14 years say more about the scope of the right to keep and bear arms. But again, that's not so much. I mean, it 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 works out in federalism in the sense that it will show what the what the ceiling is for the what the you know greatest uh, restriction that that any state can put in, but. Uh, 
um, that you'll still have variation uh, 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 beyond that. Because the way we conceive of individual rights is that uh, you know, citizens, people have the right to exercise their freedoms in various ways until uh, the state has some a strong enough interest in regulating or uh, restricting that in, in, in some way. It's, it's a slightly different uh, 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 jurisprudential architecture than the, the difference, the delineation of powers, uh, states versus the federal government. Now, on a very final note, one of the striking things about American politics today is how much attention people give to the composition of the Supreme Court. And it's almost as if that matters as much as elections to the Senate or the balance of power within the House of Representatives. Do you, do you think when the founders came up with this idea of a Supreme Court, they envisaged that one day you would have judicial activism, one day you would have, in effect, judges making decisions that, that you know, would be otherwise left the legislature? If, if there is judicial activism beyond what anyone envisaged. What what can we do to what can we do to take a step back from this uber politicization of the judiciary? Well, I think the founders um, uh, certainly envisioned a court strong enough to rule on you know, whether um, the laws that the new government they were creating produced whether they were constitutional. And then uh, with the second founding, the the Fourteenth Amendment, post uh, Civil War, uh, transforming our constitutional structure such that the federal constitution now protected individual rights against the states. They certainly envisioned uh, an active court and an active Congress uh, protecting those uh, individual rights. Um, what's happened and why there's all this hullabaloo over um, the composition of the court, the size of the court, all of these sorts of issues is because you've had an accretion of power, a centralization of power in Washington, and within Washington, within the federal government, a shifting of that power towards the executive branch, um, which, you know, administrative agencies, you know, deputy undersecretaries of such and such can't be unelected, they can only be sued uh, when they do something. And so that throws more and more uh, important political controversies into the courts. Uh, such that the Supreme Court every June is deciding half a dozen of the major political issues in the country, which is not a healthy thing. But at the same time as you have that dynamic, you also have the culmination of several trends where divergent theories of interpretation map onto partisan uh, identification or affiliation at a time when the parties are more uh, ideologically sorted and polarized than they've been since at least the Civil War, if not ever. And so um, there's uh, no way to have a kind of a, uh, a candidate, uh, a, a judge that's uh, satisfactory to both sides, and every vacancy for one of these precious seats is politically fraught. So the only way to undo this, the only way to lower the tension, isn't to fiddle around the edges with, uh, you know, there, there, there are good arguments for term limits, say, or, you know, how to conduct hearings or whatever, but all of that is addressing the symptoms. The underlying problem um, is the politicization not of the process, but of the product. And so decrease the power of the court, uh, have more decision-making at the state level and in Congress rather than in uh, executive branch agencies. And you will make uh, the court less important. You will make these fights less heated. I mean, the, I think the United States is the only country where, where people know the names even of, of, of Supreme Court justices. I hadn't appreciated that before, actually, this the idea you very articulately put forward, which is that this is a consequence of the growth of 
the administrative state in DC, and that's the root cause of the problem. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a very that's a great insight. Thank you for that. Sure. Yeah. Well, in my my book, you can read more about that dynamic. My my book, Supreme Disorder: Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. You can see uh, some of it over this here. That's the hardcover, which is now available for cheap because the paperback is coming out in two weeks with an update for the last two years. So the confirmations of Amy Coney Barrett and Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, that's coming out July fifth. Available for pre-order now. Um, there will be a link at the bottom of this video. There you go. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that, Ilya. Have a wonderful vacation and a very well-earned vacation, I might say, in uh, Sicily. And we look forward to seeing you back in America in the new role in uh, the fall. Thank you. Well, in the summer, in the summer, I'm going to come back uh, tanned, rested and ready to, to be back in the arena. Wonderful. And please do come to Mississippi. We would love to host you here in Mississippi. We have a, 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 a very active uh, speaking club um, a couple of hundred people come to each event um, do please come along we'd love to we'd love that to. that we might wait till the fall given as I know how hot it gets uh, in the summer wonderful thanks all the best take care